sure feels weird to come up here and not have to turn a battery pack on. I'm not used to it. I keep grabbing for my hip. Uh, church, well, first off, kids, normally this is when we'd play a, a video and you guys would scuttle off to class. So instead of a video, it's me. So go ahead and scuttle off to class for us. Hope you guys have a great time back there with your teachers. For everyone else who doesn't get to go maybe finger paint or make sand art as you learn about Jesus, the, the rest of us are going to be here this morning, and I'm here this morning to introduce to you uh, our very special guest speaker. His name is Trevor. Trevor is the campus minister for His House Christian Ministries that Meadowbrook has supported for many, many years. This is a ministry that as a church we have a very deep attachment to. Uh, Ron, how many years have we been affiliated with, with His House? I'm putting you on the spot, but you're the His House guy. 40, okay? So this is a long-term ministry that we are involved with, and as you have heard week after week for the last several months, it's a ministry that is finally bringing a campus house to Oakland University right next door to us. So let's give a round of applause for that. We invited Trevor here today to, to kind of share a little bit of his vision uh, for that ministry, to update us on what is happening with that ministry. Uh, Trevor does have a wife and two lovely daughters at home. They are not with us today. Hopefully we'll be seeing more of them, but they are quite literally in the middle of their move to come be part of our community here. So um, let's bring Trevor forward and let's give him a very warm Meadowbrook Christian Church welcome. eight years at Western Michigan University with the ministry, and I've been commuting back and forth every single week in order to get the ministry established here, and it, it has been so good, and I can't wait to tell you stories. But the one thing that I do want to do today is I want to clearly communicate that God's desire from the very beginning has been for the whole earth to be filled with those who love him, who worship him, his creation in right relationship with himself and with one another. And in fact, we see this from the very first biblical command that God gives to Adam and Eve. Real quickly, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, we see uh, after God creates Adam and Eve, he says, uh, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Fill the earth. God desires the earth to be filled. And not just with people, not just with animals, but with people in right relationship with him and with one another. 
if you've spent any time in scripture, you know that it doesn't take long for this story to go awry. Uh, I'm not even talking about just uh, Genesis 3, uh, Adam and Eve sinning, but even fast forwarding just a few chapters in, uh, we see that sin has ruined the right relationship with God that humanity was made for, and so God sends a flood. Uh, Noah, being found righteous, was saved along with his family. And when the waters receded from the flood, Noah and his family came off the ark. And God reiterates the same mission and the same command that he gave to Adam and Eve. Genesis 9.1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This has been God's strategic vision since the beginning. And whether it's sin entering the picture with Adam and Eve or the destruction of the world through the flood, God's commitment to this vision is unchanging. The earth filled with those who love him and worship him, his creation in right relationship with himself and with one another. We're going to do a flyover of scripture today. We will end up in Acts chapter 2. But I want us to see that from the very beginning that God has been committed to this and that what he's doing today is no different from what he was doing in the beginning. God, I am so excited to be here with my Meadowbrook family. And Lord, there's no better word than family. Not only because of the relationship that this church and this ministry have had for four decades, but because of the relationships that I personally have with those who are here. God, we want to better know your heart. God, I want to better grasp your heart, that my life would be lived in a way that would partner with you in seeing this strategic vision come to fruition. Lord, we love you. Open up our eyes to see what you've been doing all along. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 11, we get into the, t the story of the Tower of Babel. Uh, and here, yet again, just two chapters after the flood, the story has gone awry again. Uh, rather than humanity working with God to see his mission fulfilled, they are becoming, quite literally, the anti-story. In Genesis chapter 11... We see, we're going to start in verse 1. We'll read a few verses here. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The humanity is quite literally the anti-story. The command that was given not once, but twice. Humanity is actively working against. Hey, let's root ourselves here so that we won't be dispersed. Let's gather and stay rather than recognizing that God's desire from the beginning was that we would be dispersed and that the earth would be filled because he's not worthy of just one city being filled with people who worship him, but the whole earth. Going on into to verse 5, 
And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. I, I, I hope you see in this something. Uh, and nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Man, God sees incredible potential in humanity. God created us with incredible potential. But in this story, they're using it rather, to, rather than working with God, they're actively working against. So come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Can we go Thank you. Uh, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. God disperses the people. And here, we see the beginning of nations as we would know them today. And yes, while dispersing the people and confusing the language is a consequence of their sin of working against God in his mission, I wonder if our understanding of God and his mission would be better served to reframe it. What if, rather than just a punishment, this is actually God's commitment to his original desire? What if, rather than it simply being God's retribution to people disobeying, this is actually him in the midst of an uncooperative partner moving his mission forward even with them? The earth filled with people who love and worship him, a right relationship with him and with one another. In the Tower of Babel, we see God quite literally moving humanity toward this end, that when they wanted to gather, God dispersed them. Yes, there, there's a lesson that they needed to learn, but can we also see that God in this act is committed to furthering his mission? In dispersing the people from the Tower of Babel, step one is accomplished. The earth is filled. And now that the earth is filled, we see God move strategically toward the second part of his mission, that his people would be in right relationship with him and with one another. Which is where the person of Abraham enters the story. In the end of chapter 11, the very same chapter that the Tower of Babel happens we see the introduction of Abraham and his family. And moving into chapter 12, God invites Abraham to partner with him in his mission. You'll be blessed in order to be a blessing, God says. And God reveals that this is his plan to accomplish step two. With the Tower of Babel, people are across the earth. Accomplished, fantastic. But now, we need to work toward the end of right relationship with God. God and with one another. And this is where Abraham comes in. Uh, God's plan to accomplish step two was to work through Abram or Abraham's family. Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had, had, that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham, Abram excuse me, passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord, appeared, <clears throat> the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So Abram built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So on top of God promising to work through Abram and his family, he said, I will give you a land to possess that is your own. Uh, let me give you a little bonus material about me. I'm excited to get to know you guys so much better. My family's going to be moving here in mid-June, and we're, we're so excited for that. But one thing about me is I love to hunt. Uh, are there any others in here that, any hunters? Oh, only a few. I, I knew this was going to be a problem moving to the east side of the state. But, hey, <laughs> the few of us were going to band together. Um, I especially love to bow hunt for deer. Uh, and my goal at one point is to own land of my own that I can hunt on. Uh, but I love bow hunting because it's a more elegant way of trying to harvest deer. Uh, it takes a little more skill. takes a little more strategy. See, with a gun, you can sit on the edge of a field and just mow down something within a couple hundred yards. But with a bow, you have to know the deer. You have to know the terrain and strategically place yourself where they're going to be. So an important feature to look for in bow hunting is to find what we would call a pinch point. Uh, it's a transition area between different vegetation where it's a natural funnel that causes the deer to pass through a narrow strip of land as they're transitioning, whether from like coverage to food source. Right? You find this natural funnel, and this is where you post up. If you want to see and harvest deer with a bow, you need to find a pinch point. Or in other words, you need to find a bottleneck. I was tempted to put up some pictures of deer that I've shot, but that's for later. <laughs> uh, but back to the story, and why did God give Abram and his family specifically the land of Canaan? I'm not sure that land of Canaan was a bottleneck for deer, but it was the bottleneck for trade between Egypt and Syria and Turkey. Uh, of that day, the major north-south thoroughfare ran right through what is now the land of Israel, ran through Canaan. Uh, have you guys heard of the famous Silk Road that runs through Asia, Asia Minor? Uh, there was a road called the Via Maris that actually connected the south with the Silk Road that ran from Asia to Asia Minor. So this was via the via Maris, this was the major north-south travel route. God strategically placed his people at the bottleneck of the ancient world, along the via Maris. This picture doesn't do it justice because there is still some greenish around there, 
But aside from the land of Canaan, the landscape is entirely desert. It's desolate. And there, sandwiched between the powerhouses of the ancient world, God placed his people with the great city of Jerusalem, with his temple in the center of it. If you wanted to get anywhere in the ancient world, you had to pass through Israel or Canaan. If you wanted to go there by land, you had to go along the Via Maris. Uh, it was this relatively small plot of land on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea, with the entirety of the landscape around it being desert. Which means you didn't simply pass through. As you are traversing the desert, you come along come into this fertile land where there are resources, where there are people, you would stop, you would rest, you would replenish your supplies, you would actually stay for a while. Um, you're not eager to get back into the desert. Um, you're eager to get some rest and to be nourished. This trade route was a long journey <clears throat> with the entire area being desert, so you had to stay. And so this land specifically is where God decided to place his people, where anyone coming through had to stay. They had to rest. They had to interact with the people. Strategy. God placed his people in the only fruitful land on the major north-south trade route. All travelers would have to interact with God's people as they came through. And what better opportunity to interact with the world, to teach the world to worship the living God than them coming to you. Not only that, but the travelers who entered into right relationship with God would then take this new faith with them home and along the trade route because they couldn't stay. We saw with the Tower of Babel that step one of the earth being filled is already accomplished. But now, with this people, in this specific place, this has potential to fulfill the second part of people in right relationship with God and with one another. As the story continues to unfold, we see the nation of Israel failing in their partnership of this plan. Rather than exerting influence as the nations passed through, they fell prey to the influence of the nations. And as promised by God, when they were given the law, they were expelled from the land, and their temple was destroyed. The nation went into exile in Babylon for failing to partner with God in his story. But, just like the Tower of Babel, what if this wasn't just God's punishment for failing to partner well, but rather God's commitment to the same vision playing out? The books of Ezra and Nehemiah reveal that some people were allowed to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the city, but not everybody. The nation of Israel was still scattered across the then-known world. By the time we flip the pages of our Bible to the New Testament, we see the emergence of a phenomenon called synagogues, which we can think of these as many temples. They were regional or local places of worship for the people who couldn't return to Israel, who couldn't return to Jerusalem. 
But in order for them to preserve their culture and to worship God, they created these local outposts of worship scattered throughout the world. Small beacons of hope. Beacons of potential influence. All across the greater Mediterranean. So what if? What if their exile wasn't primarily to punish the nation, but rather God moving forward his mission toward the end that he had been committed to from the start? And this brings us to the first century world of Jesus. Not only is Abraham's family in Israel, in Jerusalem, but scattered around the Mediterranean Sea. And even though they're spread across the Mediterranean, the Old Testament law required that Jewish males travel to Jerusalem for three festivals a year. Now, granted, this would have been much easier when the nation was still located in the land of Canaan, but now that they're spread throughout, the, the Jewish men had to travel hundreds of miles by land and by sea in order to be in Jerusalem for these three festivals. It's in this culture, in this climate, that Jesus ministers, proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's crucified, he's risen, and before he ascends, he tells his followers that they will be his witnesses in his mission. Acts chapter 1. We're almost Acts 2. We're going to get there. If we can get to the next slide, that'd be great. Jesus tells the disciples but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. To where would, he, would they be as witnesses? To the ends of the earth. Jesus promised his Holy Spirit to his disciples as the power for the mission. But Jesus tells them to wait for him to arrive. Stay in Jerusalem and wait. But I, has anyone ever wondered why wait? Like, why does Jesus make them sit back and wait for the Spirit to come? I have. And maybe you already know this. Maybe this is a lesson that God has taught you, uh, but it's one that uh, is just so exciting to consider. Jesus was crucified at Passover. Um, it was actually the day... Uh, so the Feast of Passover had just happened. And the second feast that all the Jewish men were supposed to be at was only about 50 days later. So all of the Jewish males were in Jerusalem for the crucifixion. Scripture tells us that Jesus was betrayed and arrested on Passover, died the next day, and that he appeared to his disciples over the course of about 40 days. Which means, when Jesus gives this command to wait for the Spirit to come upon them, it is just around the corner from the next festival. This would put the ascension of Jesus and the command to wait just days before the next feast, when all Jewish men would be gathered. Acts chapter 2. We're there. When the day of Pentecost arrived, Pentecost, um, we don't see this label for the festival in the Old Testament. This is the festival of weeks or of the harvest that we see in the Old Testament. So the disciples would have been gathered to celebrate with all of the, their fellow Jewish 
men. But Acts 2 says, when the day of Pentecost, when the, the feast of weeks of the harvest arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of them, or that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, saying, they are filled with new wine. Let's make just a few observations from this passage. Verse 5 tells us that devout men from every nation under heaven was dwelling in Jerusalem because of the festival. But another interesting thing that I think we need to recognize is what seems to be the reversal or the parallel of the Tower of Babel. Acts chapter 2, rather than God dispersing, he's gathering the nations in one place. Rather than God confusing the language, he's making language clear. They understand. They hear. And it's at this point that Peter gives his famous sermon, resulting in the crowd being cut to the heart, and about 3,000 being added to their number that day. 3,000 souls saved that day. So why did Jesus have the disciples wait to receive the Holy Spirit. Because the nations would be gathered in Jerusalem, making Pentecost not only the most strategic time, but the most strategic place for the Spirit to come and for the nations to hear and for the world to be impacted. If you're looking at your paper Bible or even your digital Bible, you'll see that as we move through Acts 2, there's a, a heading a section heading between verses 41 and 42. And it'll say something like the fellowship of the believers. Now, I'm no scholar, but my understanding is that the crowds didn't go home the day after Pentecost. Just like the travelers along the trade route, you stayed to rest, to replenish, to prepare for the journey. So as we move into Acts 2.42, when it says they... I think that they is the 3,000, not just the 12 apostles, not just the 120 that were there gathered waiting for the Spirit to come, but I think this they is those 3,000 who believed. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and 
to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. These 3,000 didn't just walk away from Pentecost with a new set of beliefs or a new theology. They walked away with something far more. This passage of scripture right here, Acts 2, 42 through 47, is one that we love to go to to, to look at God's design for intimate community. Uh, the purity of the first century church we often think of. And this is the passage that we often look to to study that. And rightfully so. And we see in this passage many things that we ourselves crave in our Christian communities today. A commitment to one another. A profound sense of awe and wonder. Not, not lulled to sleep by the normal rhythms, but rather getting to see God do extraordinary things. Life happening before us. A commitment to the teachings of the apostles, to whom Jesus had given authority. They saw signs and wonders, miraculous things. They lived selflessly, selling their possessions to provide for one another's needs. They didn't consider their possessions worth holding on to, but rather they considered the people around them far more important than any material thing they could have. They were together daily to worship. Not weekly, but daily. And they had favor with all the people, meaning those who weren't believers. And as they lived out all of these things, it says that more and more people believed every day. Meaning that this group of people had an incredible witness that changed the world around them. Eventually, these men and women had to go home. But they didn't just take that new set of beliefs. They took this new experience of life lived in intimate community. They brought back to their homes a vibrant faith in Jesus that, when lived out, transformed their community. They took back with them faith in Jesus, yes. They also took back their experience of intimate community in a missional way of life. You know, we, we often tout people like the Apostle Paul as the great pioneer of missions, of how the gospel got to the world. And to a point, that, that's right, but it's always been God's desire that he would use you and I, the normal people, and not just a few selected, gifted people like Paul. And I want to give just a quick example. When Paul writes the letter of Romans, Paul hadn't been to Rome yet. And in fact, he makes that very clear in chapter 1. I'm writing to you. I want to come to you. I haven't been able to yet. But he's writing to a church that is thriving and that has been established. So if Paul wasn't the one to take the gospel to Rome, how did it get there? Ah, Acts 
chapter 2. In the list of those who are present at Pentecost, at the end of the list, in, in verse 10, it says there were visitors from Rome. It wasn't the great apostle Paul that took the gospel to Rome and the church was established. <laughs> it was those who were gathered that day, the 3,000, and they took back with them the experience they had of that intimate community. It wasn't Paul that took it there. It was those who were there on the day of Pentecost. It's a simple yet profound example of how God's strategy has always been to use all of his people to reach all corners of the earth. Not just the ones who are saying, yes, I'll go, but the ones who are in the normal day-to-day -day life live faithfully and take the gospel with them. And yes, that means you and I. God has always been strategic in accomplishing his mission of the world being filled and of the world being in right relationship with him and with one another. And this is precisely why his house is coming to Oakland University. We believe, I believe, that there's no greater strategic place to be with the gospel today than on a college campus. We want to take advantage of the exact same strategy that we saw God apply in Acts chapter 2 of the nations gathered, even if just for a short time, that they would be impacted, that they would believe they would be justified, their lives changed, and they wouldn't just then take home with them a new belief, but an entire new way of life that would transform the world. Universities are the great bottleneck of our culture and of our world. Our colleges and universities in Michigan draw students from all across the state, all across the nation, and all across the world. Here at Oakland, as of fall 22, there were 16,000 students. Of those 16,000 total students, 750 of them are international students. And those 750 international students represent 66 nations. Um, these, to my best understanding, these are not second generation internationals. Those who their families migrated over and then they started to study. These are international students who specifically came to study. Um, their families being back home. Some of these nations of the 66 represented on campus right here at Oakland. Uh, some of these students are from what the Christian West would call closed countries, like Saudi Arabia, where as much as we would hope to take the gospel of Jesus there, you and I won't. College in general is the time of life in which students will be the most moldable. In college, students are seeking the answers to life's big questions. Who am I going to be? Who will my people be? What purpose does my life have? Where will I live? Where will I go? What will I do? On top of this, the flexibility of people decreases drastically after college. You buy a house. You settle into a family. You, you have financial obligations that keep you rooted in one place. For these reasons, among several others, I'm convinced that a college campus like Oakland is the most strategic place to be with the good news of Jesus. Compared to most of the other universities in Michigan, Oakland is a little bit different. 
Um, in that, it is primarily a commuter campus. And out of the 16,000 students that attend, only about 2,000 of them live on campus. The other 14,000 commute from the greater metro Detroit area. I can't help but wonder, is this how Detroit is going to be reached? I can't help but wonder, is this going to be how the greater metro Detroit area is going to be reached? By the commuter students, who as they interact with Jesus, they come to Christ on campus, learn to live in intimate community with his people, then take home with them, even if it's just a half hour down the road. The new faith that they found in the new life-changing way that they've been given in Christ. I can't help but wonder, is that how this area of the state is going to be reached by the commuters? Whether or not you realize it, Meadowbrook has already been playing an immense role in the beginning of this ministry. Now, there are plenty of people that I can think, and I want to name a few. Um, Mike and Linda Tingley have been my mom and dad, essentially, for the last semester, hosting me just about every week when I come. Um, there were several of those weeks that Ron Borton was also kind of my, my host dad, such as last night. And it was so fun getting to share a pizza and just get to talk a little bit about what God's been doing on campus already. Um, Matt Zaremba was a big part in us getting established as uh, an actual student organization on campus, giving us access to certain resources from the university that makes it easier to meet students. Uh, of course, Ron and Teresa Megan have been connected with the ministry for, for longer than I think a lot of us realized, and maybe even longer than I've been alive. That, that was not an old joke. I'm sorry, Ron. I'm sorry. <laughs> Just... There's a relationship there that I want to honor. But I do want to caution us in one thing, though. And I want to caution you in one very specific thing. That in the coming weeks, in the coming months, you will hear things like, hey, we are going to establish his house at Oakland University. Um, when you hear people say that, like Daniel, do not believe him. I, I mean it, don't believe him. Um, we are not going to launch a ministry at Oakland University. It has already been launched. There is no, it's going to happen. It, it already has. <laughs> the semester I met with many students on campus. Uh, I started discipling a few of them. And just like Mike mentioned during our prayer time, uh, we had our first Oakland student baptized through the ministry of his house just yesterday right here. Yeah. yeah. God has been paving the way for this to happen. This isn't just because you have been an amazing church, which you have been, or just because his house has experience in college ministry, but because the Spirit of God is living and active on that campus, and there are more and more people that are waiting to be invited into a relationship with Christ, just like Annika was as she responded yesterday. I would love to tell you stories. And... Uh, I don't have a rush to get out of here, and I'm sorry if I've been going long. I get excited about this. Uh, there are so many students I could tell you about. Um, oh, forgive me if I'm going to get your name. Kirsten, right? Um, Kirsten, there are a lot of stories of students that I walked up to like you and I did earlier this semester, and it's been amazing. I'd love to tell you about students like Mina, who was born in Iraq and raised in Dubai. I'd love to tell you about Morgan, who he's local to the area here, but he's what? 
that Jesus would call a person of peace. I'd love to tell you about Angelina, whose family is from Egypt. I'd love to tell you about my international friend Desmond from Ghana. About Grayson, who walked away from the faith. About Ethan, who is excited to find believers on campus to grow with. About Peter, who is not spiritual, but somewhat has great admiration for those who do ministry. And even students like, you know, like Jess Rydell and Annika Prisby. To land the plane this morning, I want to give you three ways to consider being a part of what God's doing on campus at Oakland. And the first, do not think of this as anything lesser than the other two, is to pray. This is the only way our ministry is going to be established and fruitful, is if we pray. I believe that God does change lives when we pray. He moves when we pray. As I've been learning about the campus ministries on campus over here, um, when my family and I are here full-time in the fall, I will be one of only three full-time campus ministers on that campus. There's not much ministry happening. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So pray with me. Not only that we would go and have fruitful ministry, but that others would come that the name of Jesus would be proclaimed, that students themselves would begin ministry in that place. The second is an event that maybe you've already heard about. I know that it was advertised in some of the, the announcements. Um, there's an event that our ministry does annually called Cycle the Campus. And this is our largest annual fundraiser to help us have the resources that we need in order to do ministry on campus. And to celebrate that ministry has been, not going to be, has been launched, um, our Cycle of the Campus event is happening here on June 3rd. Uh, Meadowbrook is going to play host. Uh, thank you. Whether or not you know what you're hosting, thank you for letting us be a guest here on June 3rd. But our staff, our board members, and students from all around the state are going to be here at this building on June 3rd to ride their bicycles either 25 or 50 miles, or to run a 5K, or to prayer walk, and all of that as an excuse to raise money so that the launch of the ministry at Oakland has resources. I want to challenge you uh, to consider either giving toward that event or even better yet, ride with us. Raise money with us. Um, it's a lot easier than you think. Don't think of it as something daunting. Um, Mike Tingley is already doing an amazing job raising money and I'm sure you could get a few tidbits from him. And the third is that we do have a specific Oakland launch fund. Um, I, I would ask you to consider giving to that and to understand it's not because, uh, not just because we need money, but because this is a way to bridge the gap between you and the students who are on campus. I, I might be the one that's employed by his house, but those who give, you're the ones that you're trading your time that I would have time on campus. Um, giving's not just, hey, so that his house would have resources, but so that I can minister on behalf of you, so that I can point to students like Annika and say, Mike and Linda, Annika was baptized because of you in the investment that you've made so far this semester. Um, Ron, getting to share the gospel with students like Mina has happened only because of you and your hospitality. The only way that this ministry is going to happen is because of you. 
I can't thank you enough for the ways that you've already been supportive of us in helping us to begin the ministry here at Oakland. And together, going forward, in this most strategic place, we can partner with God as he accomplishes his mission, the one he's been committed to from the beginning. The earth filled with those who love him and worship him in right relationship with him and with one another.